long. So, all right, if you got your Bibles, head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, we are in chapter 12 and have been for several weeks now. We're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13 this morning. Um, to be quite honest with you, verse 12 is pretty easy to understand. Verse 13 is one of the most debated verses in all of the Bible. Um, we're not going to settle all of those debates this morning, um, but the goal will be to just step back in some ways from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and think a little bit about the work of the Holy Spirit and what God does with the Spirit, through the Spirit. Um, I'm going to try to give you some more terms. And uh, here's what I've done. All right, I've, I've gone next level on the nerd scale. And uh, I, I stopped short of handing this out to everyone. Um, however, up here, there is an additional notes page that has all of the information that I'll put on the screen for you. And there's just a lot of information that's going to go on the screen. There's going to be a lot of verses. We are not looking at all of them today because we just wouldn't get through it in the time that we have. But this page is designed to just give you something to do this coming week if you wanted in your own personal time with the Lord. We're going to define some terms and what I've done is I've given the definition and then I've given the corresponding scripture references to that definition. And so as we go through this morning, we're going to look at a couple verses. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit more time on one of the definitions than the other three, but all of that information is available for you to take and what you're going to get if you take the sheet is exactly what would be on the screen. Um, to give it to you right now, I think might just be a little overwhelming. So hopefully we can make some sense out of it as we go through. And then you can follow up this coming week regarding it. Um, but it, it, it's just amazing what the scriptures say about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, and in some ways, we're only scratching the surface, even this morning, in defining four different ways that he is at work, um, because there are um, at least a dozen that I could think of that we are not going to touch, or eight more at least that we're not going to touch this morning. So we're going to try to walk that fine line between thinking deeply, thinking biblically, but maybe not being in a seminary classroom. So we're going to try to, to hold that intention together, but these things do matter, and they matter for today. They don't just matter in the content information sense. There are things to learn, there are things to know, there's content that you need, but it matters for today. What we're going to look at this morning matters, quite frankly, deeply in your walk with the Lord today and tomorrow, and hopefully, Lord willing, that makes sense. So before we go any further, let's pray together, and then we'll spend some time getting ourselves caught up and jump into the text. Well, Lord, we pray now that you would come and help us understand what it is that you've said in your word. God, we believe that you have spoken, and it's in our best interest to draw near and listen. And so to that end, God, we pray that you would speak clearly, and that you would guard my words from any error, 
And as we look at your word, not just in 1 Corinthians 12, but in other places as well, that you might help us to see, to understand. God, help us to even walk out of here this morning just just praising and glorifying you for your work in our lives through your spirit. And God, deepen our desire for more. And God, I pray that you would do those things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to give you a brief recap, if you're just dialing in or perhaps the repetition is helpful, we've been in 1 Corinthians 12 for the last now five weeks, including this morning. And uh, what we've been working ourselves through over the last several weeks um, has been these four big ideas. Week one was trying to define and to distinguish signs and wonders from spiritual gifts. The two are both biblical terms. They are both in the Bible. They both happened. They're both real, but they're just not both the same. And there is some important um, theological and practical things that come out of seeing them as distinct from one another. Signs and wonders being done by the apostles and three other men for three very specific reasons having then ceased when the last apostle died, and spiritual gifts for today continuing in the church because they are given by the Holy Spirit to the body for the building up of the body. Signs and wonders are not spiritual gifts. That's where we began. Week two, we turned our attention to try to unpack and understand what are spiritual gifts designed for. Well, they're designed for the purpose of building up the body. That's the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. It's what he walks through and unpacks that our calling is. And so God calls us to build the body and then gifts us to build the body. And I would, I would submit to you that the phrase building up of the body and making disciples, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, are really synonymous ideas. And they are not distinct from one another. And so Paul just uses the language of building in 1 Corinthians there. And spiritual gifts are given for disciple making or building up of the body. In week three, we looked at the question, who do I follow? Because there are false teachers. There are false apostles. There are false prophets. There are people to be aware of and alarmed by and warned of and people to stay away from. We walked through and thought about how do we discern and determine who fits that category or not. The week after, we looked at the variety that God has given in regards to spiritual gifts. And the implications there are significant. And there is sovereignty over the gifts. There is unity among the gifts. And there is purpose with the gifts as well. Your gifts will look different than my gifts. There's no guarantee that our church has even all of the gifts represented here. Because 
God has given gifts globally, universally to the body. There's nothing that says any one church congregation would even have all of the gifts. But within a local body, we have different gifts. But every one of them is supernaturally inspired. Every one of them, you might say, is miraculous. It would be incorrect to say some gifts are supernatural and some gifts are more natural. They are all supernatural. They are all empowered by one and the same spirit. There are distinctions between the gifts. There are different places gifts are used and there's different results that happen when gifts are used. But all of that is because of the design of God. And so take, for example, somebody with the gift of teaching. We probably had a few people here this morning working and serving in an area of giftedness as teachers. Some taught little kids. Some taught not so little kids. The same gift of teaching has a different place where it's going to be applied. And there's going to be different results that happen. But all of that's because of the sovereign design of God. You're not more important if you teach the twos and threes or less important if you teach the teens or vice versa. There's a divine variety of gifts and we should work really hard at not drawing distinctions amongst the gifts or gifted people because some gifts may look a little bit more spectacular than others. Some gifts may have a little bit more flair than others. But those gifts are not any more supernaturally empowered than others. Last week we then began working through in verses 8 through 11 to just define the gifts. And this morning we turn our attention to verses 12 and 13. So let's go to verses 12 and 13 here. Let's read them and then we'll spend a little bit more time on 13 than we will 12. Um, And so as we get going just to give you a heads up of where we're going to really park most of our time. Uh, But there Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one Spirit. A couple things to just note. If you highlight, if you underline, if you circle, these would be things to highlight, circle, and note. It would be the words all and the words one in verses 12 and 13. Both show up several times. The words or the word one shows up more than the word all, but those two words are important words because what we have here is an explanation. Of what Paul has been walking through since the beginning of verse 12. In the very beginning of verse, or chapter 12, in the very beginning of verse 12, you have the word for, which exists to tell us and signal to us that there's an explanation coming. So there's a variety of gifts. There's a variety of places those gifts are used. There's a variety of outcomes those gifts will have when they are used, but all of the gifts are empowered by one and the same spirit because there is one body. And he begins to explain 
how you and I are to think of ourselves amidst the distinction there may be and how we're to prioritize unity even though there are differences. For just as, that word just as, those words just as could be even more literally translated precisely as. Paul's unpacking a metaphor for us and it's the metaphor of the body. He's hinted at this metaphor two different times. He now, in chapter 12, is going to unpack it in great detail, and we'll get into that in more detail next week. But just thinking of some of the other metaphors that he has used throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, he has said the Corinthians are infants in Christ because of their behavior. They're not acting like people who have the Spirit and are indwelt with the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. They're acting like infants. They're selfish they're, they're, they're taking the desires of their flesh and they're working them out, not the desires of the Lord. He says, you're God's field, you're God's building, you're God's temple. The capital C there is just a signal to us that that verse is a reference to us collectively. We might say corporately. So when we gather together, we're the temple of God. But it's not just our individual church, it's the universal church. The church throughout the world collectively, corporately is the temple of God. Paul comes back to criticize the Corinthians and their behavior and says, you guys are acting like an unleavened lump. That's an Old Testament reference. Talking about removing leaven, which became a metaphor itself to represent sin. He said, you're an unleavened lump. Act like it. There in verse 15 of chapter 6, we have the first reference to being members of Christ's body. In 619, we're individually told that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 10, verse 17, he returns briefly to share and shed light on the fact that we are one body in fellowship with one another. And here in chapter 12, verse 12, he returns to that idea. So the distinctions within the body exist, but the way to think about ourselves is to do so as we would our human bodies. For precisely as the human body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. It's not a hard idea to get our minds wrapped around in theory. It's perhaps a little bit more difficult to live out. But if you would break your arm, break your leg, cut off your finger with a saw, you could say, I broke my arm, I broke my leg, I cut my finger. But you could also say, I hurt myself. Because there's a lot of different parts to our bodies. Wasn't it the bar of soap that told us we had 2,000 parts with lever? 2,000? It's a lot of different parts, but it's just one body. Parts don't all have the same function. Nobody really knows what the appendix is for. It's still a part of the body. It's how we're to think of ourselves. 
distinctions exist as we think about the gifts. They exist because of God's sovereignty, not because of any individual awesomeness that exists between you or me or them. It's God who has made the choice. The gifts don't signal more supernatural power or less supernatural power. All of them are empowered by one and the same spirit. And here's the explanation then. is because we're all one body. And just like our human bodies have a whole lot of different parts to them, so it is with the body of Christ. There is one Our role doesn't determine our value or indicate our status. There's not first class or second class Christians. And what spiritual gifts you have are the result of God's sovereign choice. And in some ways, they're no reflection on you. Either positively or not. One commentator said this, what makes the Corinthians one is their common experience of the Spirit. The very Spirit responsible for and manifested in the great diversity of gifts Paul has just outlined. And the body of Christ, though composed of a variety of different parts, is one body. Now we'll unpack that a lot further next week. Because he's going to go a lot further next week and unpack how we're to think about ourselves and how we're to think about others. But in verse 13, we have another word for that shows up. Again, indicating to us an explanation is coming. So in verse 12, the word for indicated that we had an explanation coming regarding what had been just worked through in verses 8 through 11, perhaps all the way up to verse 4. And in verse 13, the word for is now signaling to us there's an explanation coming as to how this body can be composed of many parts and yet still one. And he writes, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free. You need to see in that phrase, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, that there are no ethnic differences that matter and there are no cultural, societal differences that matter. Those two groups that he outlines are some of the most basic foundational differences that existed within their culture, ethnic and societal doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. doesn't matter what your social status may be. You have been baptized into one body and made to drink of one spirit. Now, I told you this verse is a hotly debated verse, and we're not going to settle all the debates, nor are we going to even attempt to get into them because it's some pretty heavy Greek that is way beyond any of our pay grades. One commentator wrote this, that almost every word and phrase in verse 13 is disputed and debated. And in some ways, at issue is whether or not verse 13 is talking about a baptism by the Spirit or a baptism in the Spirit. That's kind of the central tenet of the foundational debate there. I don't know if you've ever heard of the phrase baptism in the spirit, but there are certain denominations that teach that you should 
come and be baptized in the Spirit. And they may have conferences or retreats or opportunities to come and be a part of that. And to do so, our fellowship would believe that baptism in the Spirit is something that happens immediately upon salvation. It's a one-time act. It, it happens. And so there's some differences. I want to try to define some terms for you as we think about the role of the Holy Spirit, because these things matter, and like I said in the beginning, they matter for today. They matter for your walk with the Lord here and now. So we're going to spend a lot more time on the very last one. We'll spend a little bit of time here. We're going to kind of blow through pretty quickly definitions two and three, but they're all on the paper that you can take home if you want to go super nerd status and dig a little deeper, okay? So baptism in the Spirit, the definition that I would give, that I believe would be given by our fellowship, is the one-time action of Jesus, whereby believers become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and members of the body of Christ. You're baptized in the Spirit into one body, and this happens at the moment of salvation. This was a promise that Jesus made. It was something that the man we call John the Baptist prophesied of. And there you can see in Matthew 3 and Mark 1 and Luke 3 and John 1, each one of the gospel writers record the prophecy John made that I baptize with water, but one's coming who will baptize with or in the Spirit. And there's a few variances between those passages. Some include baptizing the Spirit with fire. Some include that John's not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. But the main thrust of every one of those passages is the same. Acts 11, 16 is pretty significant for us to try to understand and unpack the baptism of the Spirit. Because it is something that I believe happens at the moment of salvation. It is a one-time act. It's not something that you go and look for. It's not something that you need to pray for. It's not something that's accompanied by any spectacular or supernatural sign, whether it be tongues or otherwise. Peter in Acts 11, when reporting to the leaders in the early church about the salvation of the Gentiles that took place in Acts 10. says, I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, and now Peter's quoting Jesus from Acts 1, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit. As you look at Acts 10 and that event that happens, those believers immediately received the Spirit were baptized in the Spirit, became a part of the body of Christ. Now, to be fair and just in full disclosure, Acts 10 and Acts 19 both have references to tongues happening as the Spirit comes and as salvation takes place. But I would contend those are not normative experience. That's not the normal experience of salvation. And there's very specific reasons why that happens. We'll unpack that when we get to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. I still keep punting tongues down the road. But we're going to get there. When Peter stands up in Acts 2, 
It says in verse 38, repent, every one of you. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every one of those believers, all 3,000 of them, as they obeyed, received the Holy Spirit as a gift, were baptized in the Holy Spirit, were placed in the body of Christ. That was the fulfillment of what Jesus said would take place in Acts 1. That was the fulfillment of John the Baptist's prophecy as he had his ministry of baptism before as he was the forerunner to Jesus, the last of the Old Testament prophets. There are some uniquenesses in the book of Acts as it relates to salvation and baptism with water and the coming of the Spirit, and, but th- there's an explanation for those. And we'll unpack those as we keep going in the next several weeks. But those experiences were not the baptism in the Spirit as you and I and as the church has normally experienced since Acts 15. The baptism of the Spirit is the one-time action of Jesus whereby believers become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and members of the body of Christ. It happens at the moment of salvation. So if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And this is exactly what water baptism represents. So in a couple weeks when we fill the tank, in the beginning of October, and we have a baptism, that's what we're symbolizing. The next definition I want to give to you is, if I can get this to go forward, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. This is the one-time action of God the Father who seals each believer with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that the good work he began will be completed. The Holy Spirit has a work of sealing. Think of a wax seal placed on an envelope maybe even stamped with a signet ring. The work of the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit himself, is that seal, is that guarantee. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're not just baptized in the Spirit, into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit becomes a seal upon you, guaranteeing that what God has begun in your life will be completed. Several references there, but Ephesians 4.30 is helpful. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit acts as a guarantee in our lives that God will do what he says he will do. This is a one-time action. In many ways, sealing is very close to indwelling. They are different. There's a nuance and distinction between the two of them, but they're very similar. The indwelling of the spirits, the ever-present dwelling of the Holy Spirit, both corporately as we saw within the church and individually within each believer. And there's a list of verses referencing each of those. Justin read from Ephesians 2 this morning and how we all together corporately 
are being built into a dwelling place. The Spirit indwells us collectively, corporately. He also does so individually. Very similar to sealing. In some ways, you might say that the action of sealing comes from the indwelling. It would not be inappropriate to say that. And it's sealing and indwelling that in large regard gives us confidence as believers that there is an assurance of salvation. You could use the term eternal security to describe this. That we're not going to get unsaved. We can't somehow sin our way out of God's grace. It's because he puts his spirit on us as a seal. Guarantees and stamps us to say, she's mine. He's mine. And the spirit then indwells us. Now there's, so, there's, there's all sorts of implications about being the dwelling place of the spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, look, you gotta be, you got to be careful what you see. you got to be careful who you spend time with. you got to be careful how you, how, how you use your body because you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's made his dwelling in you. What you put in your body matters. How you take care of your body matters. What you do with your body matters because God himself is right there. And dwelling of the Spirit is the ever-present dwelling of the Spirit in our church corporately, in the church universally, and then within each of us individually. Lastly is the filling of the Spirit. This is the sustained or special enabling of the Spirit for obedience, serving, and ministry. Now, there's two, there's two aspects to filling. One of the aspects of being filled by or with the Holy Spirit has a continued, sustained aspect or nuance to it. The other has a very, almost more instantaneous or special aspect or nuance to it. But let me just say this as we try to unpack this. Thinking about the filling of the Spirit, as a normal pattern in our lives, which it should be, we should pray for this every day without ceasing. As a normal pattern in our lives, I would submit to you, this only works if we're all in. This only works if we if we really want to fight sin, if we really want to glorify the Lord, if we really want to build up the body, if we really want to walk in obedience. Because I would submit to you then further that the normal pattern of sustained filling invariably leads to then the special filling. Let me put those two phrases on the screen for you and just try to illustrate for you what I mean. The first, as I said, is the sustained filling of the Holy Spirit for obedience and for ministry. The second is the special or sudden filling of the Holy Spirit for serving and for ministry. There's two different Greek words that each of those categories are associated with. 
Luke and Paul are the only writers in the scriptures that use these words to reference any work of the Holy Spirit. And so there's two very clear ideas, even though they are very, very closely related and in some ways, unfortunately, translated both in English as the word fill or full or filled. So the distinction's not entirely clear as we read the scriptures in our English translations, but those distinctions do exist. So let me just try to illustrate for you what I mean and how I mean that the two kind of interplay with each other and the sustained as a normal pattern invariably leads to the special or the sudden. Every day, I seek to be continually filled with the Spirit by beginning my mornings spending time with God and His Word and actively praying then throughout the day. Specifically even asking the Holy Spirit to fill me for what I need. Whether it be in spending time preparing to preach, whether it be spending time preparing to have conversations with some of you, whether it be spending time to be prepared to lead well, there is a very, very focused and purposeful and concentrated desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit and for that to be a sustained, continuing reality in my life. In a lot of ways, that's dependent on how passionate I am at walking in obedience with the Lord and how passionate I am at running away from sin. It's hard to be filled with the Holy Spirit when I might be filling my eyes with junk on TV. But there's a sustained feeling that should be prayed for. It should be searched after. It should be pleaded for. We should be begging God to fill us with his spirit for obedience and for ministry. But then in the special, sudden sense, every Sunday morning, with I believe the exception of one, I spend time on my knees in my office before I walk into this room asking the Holy Spirit to fill me for what takes place now. I plead with him to keep me from saying anything that isn't biblical or wouldn't be helpful. Last week as we began trying to define these terms, I mean, that's a powder keg. Trying to define these terms. I played with the Lord. Look, if, if I'm going to say something I shouldn't, just take my voice. Just take it. But when I stand here, I do so after having walked for a week in trying to live out the, the continual desire for the Lord to be that present and real in my life, that there's a, a filling for obedience and for ministry, but then there's a special pleading that takes place. I plead with Him to use me however He would see fit. I plead with Him to make His word make sense. Now, here's where they're invariably connected, okay? 
God can certainly do number two regardless of what I do with number one. Does that make sense? But as a normal pattern of life, if my week has been spent walking in disobedience, number two is probably not happening in the same way. Two are interconnected. We've got to be praying for them, seeking after them. Parents used to say, garbage in, garbage out, right? So you spend your week putting garbage in. Garbage is going to be what comes out. So as a normal experience in our lives, the filling of the Spirit makes sense when we are all in. When we're walking in obedience and desperately desiring to walk in obedience and asking the Lord to fill us for obedience and for ministry. And so this first sense of being sustained, continually filled with or by the Holy Spirit for obedience we have a phrase that we, I don't know about we, it's a phrase I grew up with in middle school and high school, being on fire for the Lord. Somebody goes to a conference, they come back, they go to a retreat, they come back, they go on Operation Barnabas, they come back, they're, they're on fire for the Lord. Usually we use that phrase to mean like they're, they're reading their word every day, they're, they're praying, they're, there's, just a, there's a renewed passion and intensity in their lives to be serving and be used. That's this first big idea, the sustained filling of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas was one of these men, when he came, saw the grace of God, he was glad, he exhorted the believers there to remain faithful to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's that word sustained. That's the idea there. And the disciples, Acts 13, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The idea of sustained, continual. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.17, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Boy, that idea there is significant. Thinking about sustained filling, you'd have to continually be drinking alcohol to sustain drunkenness. We need to be continually seeking the Lord to fill us with His Spirit for obedience and ministry. But the contrast between the two is also significant. If you're filled with alcohol, you're not being controlled by the Spirit. You've lost some of your ability to think and to reason and to control your actions. It's part of the reason why not being a drunkard is a qualification for being an elder. And as we, as, as an elder team, tried to put some definition to those qualifications, we, we said in a footnote, but it, nonetheless there, that we're going we're gonna to apply that forward to the abuse of prescription medication, to marijuana, to any substance that is going to control and alter your ability to think clearly and be in control of your faculties. 
Because if you're not able to think clearly or be in control of your faculties, you're not being filled with the Spirit. It's a qualification for elders. The sustained filling of the Holy Spirit is something we should pray for. It's something we should seek after. Something we should prioritize. Go to your conferences and your retreats and ask the Lord to give you a fresh filling of His Spirit. Think of it this way. Okay? Is the balloon full of air? Try again. It's full. It's the balloon full of air. But it's more full, right? That was that was terrible. It's still more full yet, but it's still full. Filling of the Spirit is similar. Seek after it. Pursue it. Pray for it. Plead with the Lord for it. Walk in obedience to Him. Stay away from stuff that's going to take your mind and your faculties away from you. Because that's going to work against the Spirit. But then there's a special or a sudden filling of the Holy Spirit for serving and for ministry. And so in Acts 2.4, this was the experience of the disciples. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's a very unique experience in the church. It's one that's unrepeated anywhere else in the book of Acts. And it's a part of this massive transition that's happening between the the resurrection of Jesus and then the establishment of the early church. Part of what's significant then is how Luke tells us Peter in Acts 4 rises up and speaks and is filled with the Holy Spirit and says to the rulers of the people and the elders, there's no hint in Acts 4 that tongues was a part of it. Here he was filled with the Holy Spirit, but tongues weren't involved. He was speaking to people that spoke Hebrew. All he had to do was speak Hebrew. He didn't need tongues. But here he was filled in a special, sudden way with the Holy Spirit for serving or ministry. Acts 34, the believers gather. Peter and John are released from prison. They gather back, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with God, of God with boldness. There was a sudden, special filling for serving and for ministry that takes place. It is not wrong to pray for that either. We have to be very careful that we don't somehow take one of the gifts and say, well, when, when it happens, this gift's going to always show up. And that's how you know it happens. There's no normative experience in the New Testament to support that claim. And I think it's really important to see a distinction between baptism in the Holy Spirit and filling of the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit's a one-time act where Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit into his body. Filling is an ongoing 
everyday pursuit of our lives where we should be begging the Lord to fill us with his spirit. We should be pleading with him. We should be spending time in his word and with his people. And we should be asking him to fill us for what we need in a special way. I know people who won't walk out of their home without stopping first at the threshold of their front door and saying, Lord, when I cross this mark, whatever you have for me, I'm yours. Fill me with your spirit to be used by you. That's this idea. This should be something that we all desperately search after and plead with the Lord for. And I just wonder, what would it look like collectively and even individually if, if we began to actively pray for more of the Holy Spirit in our lives? That, that we maybe are like this. But we find ourselves a, a little bit discontent being like this. Because we want to be like this. And maybe we find ourselves just being discontent. Being like this, no, we want, Lord, we want more. We want more, give us more. We want to be controlled by you. We want to be used by you. We want to be ready to say what you would have us to say, to whom you would have us to say it, when you would have us to say it. And we want to be working real hard every day at just being generally prepared in a continual sense. But we also want to be ready in an instant. If we're called to give a reason for our hope, or we're placed in a situation where someone needs encouraged, whatever it might be, what would it look like if we were that church that just actively prayed for this? And in doing so, we asked Jesus to give us more of a spirit so that we could put more of our sin to death. That we pray that Jesus would give us more of his spirit so that we could glorify him even more and be that much more devoted and dedicated and committed to making disciple, making disciples. Maybe we'd actively pray that Jesus would fill us with his spirit to love a lost and broken and dying world. That we'd serve well with our hands and proclaim hope with our mouths. And it doesn't matter how old you are. So fifth graders, you can do this. And you should. 90 year olds, you can do this. And you should. God wants to pour out his spirit on us. To fill us with and for obedience and ministry and serving Let's draw near. Let's beg of him to do so. And let's just watch him then go to work. Would you pray? God, we pray for that. Pray that you'd fill us with more of your spirit. That you'd fill us with a desire for more of your spirit. That you'd give us a, a holy sense of, of discontentment 
that we do want more and we want more in the ways that you, that you, you tell us more is, is to be found. So God, I pray that you would give us a desire for, for more of your spirit that we might obey you even more and, and serve that much more effectively in, in ministry. And God, would you give us more of your spirit that we might just be ready on a moment's notice to say what you'd want us to say, to, to share a scripture that you would bring back into our minds, that we'd, we'd be willing to pray for somebody as they talk about whatever's going on, whether it's a joy or a sorrow, that we, in that instance, might just say, Let, let's just pray. God, would you give us more? and Would you give us a desire for more of you? So you give life, you give love, and it's your breath, it's your spirit. It's in our lungs, and so we pour out our praise. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen.